0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Quip, HelloFresh, Best Fiends, The Great Courses Plus, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: Last week, we brought you The Legend of the Pied Piper, a more than 700-year-old story that details the vanishing of 130 children from the small town of Hamelin, Germany, in the year 1284. While historians cannot seem to suss out what really happened the day those kids disappeared, many of them do concur on this startling idea, which is that there's something real at the heart of this story. Something more than just an allegory about not paying a stranger for a job well done. The question is, what is that kernel of truth? What could have left such an indelible impression on the townsfolk of Hamelin? Theories abound, of course, and one of them details how after the children vanished into a cave in the Koppenberg, they emerged in Transylvania somehow, over 1100 miles away, as detailed here in this portion of Robert Browning's 1842 poem, The Pied Piper of Hamelin. In Transylvania there's a tribe of alien people who ascribe to the outlandish ways and dress on which their neighbors lay such stress, to their fathers and mothers having risen out of some subterranean prison into which they were trepanned long time ago in a mighty band out of Town in Brunswick land, but how or why they don't understand. Tonight, we'll look at that bizarre proposition and, as we do here at Astonishing Legends, every other possible explanation we could find, plus one or two more, of course. Keep your mind open as you listen. Maybe you can bring something to this mystery yourself once you get a bird's eye view of all the moving parts.
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forest Purchase. In order to talk about
1: any genre, particularly what we call simple genre, a myth, a legend, an anecdote, a tall tale, and so on, we really have to understand something about the origin of stories altogether. Professor, Ph.D., author, and folklorist Jack Zipes regarding his book, The
0: Irresistible Fairy Tale. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on The Pied Piper. And we're back. Well, that we are. And before we go any further, there's something I need to take care of. You got to start doing that before we start No, recording. no, no, not right. that. I, I, oh. just want, I just wanted to say we need listener segues, people. You know those bits uh, yes. where you get to hear your own voice on the show after our commercial breaks? Well, we ran out of them a few weeks ago, and I asked for more on social media, which is my go-to always. And we got a bunch in, so thank you. But we still need more. It's your chance to get out there in front of hundreds of thousands of folks, just like yourself. So go to astonishinglegends.com and find the contact menu at the top of our page and hover over that or click on it, depending on however you're getting there with your smartphone or a website, and you'll see a link for listener segues. Click on that link and it will take you to a page that will tell you exactly what to do and how to send them in.
1: Or, oh, here comes the even more complicated. Quote. No,
0: no, no. This is good. This is oh. good. I made right. another one of those special tiny URLs <laughs> that will take you straight there. Those are much more complicated
1: and confusing than just if you typed out the whole thing in a URL.
0: No, no, no. This is good. This is a good one. Much Listen, more worse than the This is the, the best one I've ever done. Are you All ready? Right. Tinyurl.com slash listener segs. Segs. SEGS, Sense. yeah, SEGS. S-E-G-S. It's short for segways. Ah, S-E-G-S. uh-huh. You've
1: got to stop making up these acronyms. I don't even know what, what you call them.
0: With tiny URLs, if somebody else has already done it, you can't do it. I can't just do this uh, It wouldn't have worked. So okay. anyway, you can All get right. there from the contact link at astonishinglegends.com, or you can go to tinyurl.com slash segs. Is there anything else
1: overly complicated that you want listeners to remember while they're doing other things and listening to the show?
0: No, I think, I think that covers it. Okay. All right then. Well, let's get back to the Pied Piper. Right. So last week, we talked about the legend of the Pied Piper at large. And I just want to recap a few things before we dive into the theory section here, of which there were so many theories, <laughs> they actually warranted their own episode in this two-part series. Well, that's what's interesting about this
1: topic, because some legends will explore. It's not a timeline story. I mean, there's a little bit we covered in part one about when the legend appeared or when it was claimed this event to have happened in 1284. Yeah. And then how medieval writers after that took that story, added to it, adapted it, morphed over the centuries and and to what we know it today. But really, as we said in part one, The story's very short. It's just a mention of an incident, which we've now realized, weirdly, possibly could have happened. Yeah, that's the anchor. Some other legends, it's like, okay, we do medieval stuff. Scott starts losing his mind because it's a four-page timeline of events and how it's handled, uh, specifically Oak Island. It's (laughs) like, this thing was found. And then there's 250 years of events that happened that we have to cover to capture the whole story. But here, it's one small mention of an incident, and the rest of it is theories of like, wow, okay, so if this did happen, what did happen? What are some possible theories currently that we could explore? But also, what do the people think back
0: then? How do they handle this? Well, and coming around to all the theories we're going to talk about, I actually wanted to paint a big picture of the overview of all the different versions of the story. And for that, I want to come back to Professor D.L. Ashleman. Who we mentioned only briefly in part one. Now, Professor Ashleman holds a BA from the University of Utah as well as a PhD from Rutgers. And he is an American folklorist and writer and professor emeritus of German at the University of Pittsburgh. Now, Professor Ashleman has a ton of wonderful web pages up about all types of folklore, but the one most pertinent to this series, of course, is titled The Pied Piper of Hemelm. And we have a link to it in our show notes. Now, the reason that this particular page is so great is because the professor not only compiled all of the Pied Piper legends, or the more popular ones, but any relating legends to it that he could find onto one page with links to pages where he has faithfully reproduced all of those different versions. This page is the page you can go to if you want to understand every iteration of the legend and try to figure out what they all do or don't have in common, and each one of them is meticulously sourced and cited, and of course, we have a link to it in our show notes. Now, the contents of that page are something you'll need to go through on your own. And I think anyone who wants to know even more about the Pied Piper than we're sharing here should start there, as well as with anything they can find by Professor Jack Sipes, who we mentioned in part one as well. Both of these gentlemen are at the top of the folklore field. And we plan, at least I do, to add several of their books to the Astonishing Legends library, which I already need spare room for.
1: Oftentimes, as (laughs) if I do have to listen back to the show, Scott will say, and we'll have those in the show notes, and I didn't include them on the Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah, but I'll try this time. Well, I'll make a concerted year. effort, yeah. It's
0: 166 so. episodes you need to go back through them.
1: To be fair, in he did so much research here, Scott did. There are 160
0: links to different various <laughs> things. I'm not even sure how he had time to even browse them. So It's in the show notes. Well, getting back on point, one of the great things, and I alluded to this in part one, about Professor Ashleman's Pied Piper page is the categorization he's done right up front there. That's one of those tasks that's presented and comprehended in seconds, when you see the page, but it takes a vast amount of knowledge and understanding of every single version of the legend to do it. So I'm going to explain. On his webpage about the Pied Piper, he shares 29 different prominent versions of the Pied Piper legend. 29. Now, those 29 are broken into three categories, and this is what I'm talking about. The three categories are rat catchers who abduct children, rat catchers but no abduction of children, and then simply mysterious disappearances of children. Obviously, there's a lot of stories about mysterious disappearances of children, but these are ones that specifically tie back to Hamlin somehow. There are 11 in the rat catchers who abduct category, 11 in the rat catcher only category, and 7 in the children only category of the 29. There's a lot you can glean from this kind of classification, and not the least of which is that the brothers Grimm have a story in two of the three categories. And I feel like we didn't make this clear in part one because I myself didn't really understand it until today. They have (laughs) the children of Hamelm in the rat and kid snatching category. And then they also have the rat catcher in the rat catching only category. Uh Both of the Grimm versions are from the same book, the one we mentioned in part one, Die Kinder zu Hamelm, Deutsche Sagen, published in 1816. And that's the first version of the their German stories. That's what Deutsche Sagen is, and the Children of Hameln. Now it appears as legend number two hundred and forty-four in that eighteen sixteen edition. In later editions, it is legend number two hundred forty five. And specifically, that is the children of Hameln or Hamlin. Force you remember Dieter, right, on Saturday Night Live, Mike Myers' character? (laughs) Yeah, of course. I love these legend (laughs) numbers because like, and now we read legend number 244. (laughs) (laughs) Your telling of the story bores my soul. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's the story that has the children in it. That is the first one, and that is number 244. Right. And so now we talk about the other version. The interesting thing about the next version, the rat catcher, which makes no mention of children at all, is that it comes directly after the other version in that 1816 edition of Deutsches Sagen. It was legend number 245, and then in later editions, legend 246, because of whatever that mystery rogue legend is that got inserted in front of these two that made them both go down. I don't know why that... I was tempted to try and figure out what the new extra legend was that got added in the later editions Uh. of the uh, Brothers Grimm book. Because that's you know that's what we do here, but then it occurred to me that that was going to be a really long waste of time, and I've decided just to let a <laughs> let a listener figure it out. Because first of all, I don't have the eighteen sixteen edition, and I don't have the following edition. You'd have to get both editions and try to see what the new legend is in the first 244 legends or whatever. Maybe it's the very right. first one, who knows.
1: Actually, I did read uh, one of your links here by Dr. Jack Zipes yes. about the Brothers Grimm. And one thing that he pointed out that a lot of even uh, German folklore scholars may not realize and, and folklorists may not realize is that that first edition in uh, what, 1816? 1816, the, 1816 in the mid, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that first one varies greatly or actually the editions that follow in the 1840s decades later differ greatly from that first edition so many things were added and changed by these brothers right so what i took away is that these volumes underwent an evolution themselves yeah which is fascinating and and just their work is uh, really important to folklore in general but it's just it's how you start off with uh these collections and and all the different sources that they gathered from, not just oral traditions, but literature of the day, small, like they'd be like supermarket kind of giveaway types of books with little legends in them. They, they found everything that they could,
0: compiled it. And in the decades afterwards, everything had changed a little. What they did, it makes those books really priceless, in my opinion. And I don't mean priceless in terms of Sotheby's. I mean, it's priceless because this is stuff that happens And it's lost a time forever if somebody isn't documenting it or keeping track of it along the way especially oral history, which they sought out to get, uh, because those stories, when the storytellers die, and everybody knows this, that knows anything about any sort of indigenous or aboriginal peoples anywhere, if the stories or the language even doesn't get passed on, it dies out, which is a tragedy. So it's really awesome what the Brothers green did here. And yeah. to have these two versions of the story just highlights how they were not writing themselves, they were only trying to compile and present, and that's fascinating too, So, Forrest, here's what's going to happen. The rat catcher Mm -hmm. is so short, you're just going to read it to our listeners here. Really? I am. Yep, that's what you're doing. You didn't ask me, though. No, I'm asking you now. Come on. We got to keep moving, man. We don't have time for (laughs) asking things ahead of time. (laughs) Well, it's
1: in your notes, so I guess I'll just do it. (laughs) All right, here we go. The rat catcher knows a particular tone, which he sounds nine times on his fife, and then all rats follow after him wherever he wants them to go into a pond or a pool. Once, a village could not be rid of its rats, and finally they sent for the rat catcher. He prepared a hazel stick in such a manner that all rats were drawn toward it. They would then have to follow anyone who took hold of the stick. Waiting until a Sunday, he laid it in front of the church door. As the people were going home after the worship service, a miller came by, saw the good-looking stick lying there and said, That will make a fine walking stick for me. He picked it up and left the village, walking toward his mill. Meanwhile, a number of rats began to leave their cracks and corners and came running and jumping across the fields toward him. The miller, still carrying the stick, had no idea what was happening. When he came to a meadow, they ran from their holes and ran across the fields and pastures after him. Running ahead, they were inside his house before he himself was, and they stayed there as a plague that could not be overcome.
0: Right, the source on that, it's from D.L. Ashleman's website, Professor Ashleman's website, but it's originally the story Der Rottenfange from the Deutsche Sagen, <laughs> legend number 245 in the Brothers Grimm's 1816 edition, and it appears on uh, pages 333 and 334, and then later became legend number 246, thanks to the mystery legend. Aha. That's pretty interesting there. There is absolutely nothing going on with kids there. The other thing that's interesting to me is uh, he never plays the pipe in this short story, which you know. I'm gathering well, they sat down and heard from, I think, an older woman because that's mentioned in the history of the of the Brothers Grimm that of the people they went to see to get these oral histories. Yeah, and you know maybe just how she told the story, but and and maybe that's how it's always told. But it is mentioned in the first stanza or paragraph here of the story. It that. is, but then he just leaves a stick for a guy to pick up, and they follow the guy with the stick.
1: Okay, well, there's a couple of things that I noticed going on here, that the fife and the magical tones he's able to play on them, as well as the stick, are two different tools right. this rat catcher has at his disposal. So, well, you know what it is? It's magic. Yes. Uh, there's, there's a magical element here, especially with the hazel stick. It's like uh, water witching. It's dowsing. The particular type of wood seems to matter with hedge witchery, a, a type of natural... Uh, uh, witchcraft, which uses the elements of, of wood and herbs and uh, potions that are magically derived from natural elements, you could say, to gain some kind of effect on the natural world. And here, it's rats, along with the musical tones, which might be a form of hypnotism. Now, did you know that you can hypnotize a chicken?
0: I had Yes, I did know that, weirdly. <laughs> I don't know why I knew that. I've yeah. certainly never tried it and had no call to, but um, yes, right. I did know that you can hypnotize a chicken
1: yeah i've I've heard it done where you you take your finger you make a circle around uh their head yeah. uh so they kind of look at it and then once it's your finger is back towards the front of them and they're they're following your finger, you draw a line towards the ground and they'll stare
0: at it oh yes I've seen that I've seen a YouTube video of that very recently actually. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, my point is that animals can be
1: influenced. Uh, if you if you stroke an alligator's stomach going from head to tail, it yes. will put them to sleep. You can wake them up going the opposite way. Right. So I'm wondering if it's possible you could influence behavior of animals with a special flute and special tones that somehow gets their attention and maybe not puts them in a trance, but gets their attention and they'll follow you.
0: The stick here, though, that does to me sound more like witchcraft. And then there's, again, the inscription, which we'll come to later, that describes the magician, the day that the magician came and took yeah, the kids Yeah, it's a away. wand. It's it's Essentially, it's a wand
1: yeah. of a special sort, and even the miller was attracted to it. Right. That's all this imagery. I, I think a lot of our folklore now and what we see with our current legends stem from
0: descriptions like this. And he probably, he was heard to say, Radicus begonicus. <laughs> Um, No, I don't think he said that. Oh, you're doing Harry Potter now. Yeah, Yeah. Astonishing Legend, sad (laughs) jokes.
1: That's what I'm talking about, though. Mentions like this and the imagery within them get transformed throughout the centuries, and that's what pops into our minds when we think about things
0: like this, like enchantment and mystical strangers and magic. By the way, this supports the idea that this was Bohemian oral history because they supposedly gathered this oral history from German Bohemia, And the idea that these bohemian rat catchers had this secret note or tone that only they could play nine times on a fife and control the rats, it came from that. But there's no mention of what the note or the fife or the pipe, as I said, ever being played in the story. It's the stick, the hazel stick. So I don't know if that's just a foregone conclusion. Anyway, we have this one story about the rat catcher who abducts children and then another one about a rat catcher who just deals with the rats both in the Brothers Grimm's 1816 edition of Deutsche Sagen, or German stories. And I just wanted to make that clear, because as you start to look at the theories behind what happened in Hamlin, you have to remember that there are a lot of different versions of this story. And honestly, these Grimm versions aren't really that old in terms of publication. They were published 532 years after the event supposedly occurred but the one with the children is probably the most well-known version in today's world with Robert Browning's poem being, I think, a close second. Now, we already mentioned in part one of our series here that the earliest mention of rats in the Pied Piper story was in the late 16th century in Count Froben Christoph von Zimmern's Zimmerish Chronic, a chronicle of the German noble Zimmern family. That itself was over 275 years after the children of Hameln were supposed to have disappeared. I want to repeat that. No rats were in the story, as far as historians can currently tell, for the first 300 years that the story was around. For all we know, Count Christoph von Zimmern simply made that part up. But conversely, it stands to reason that rat catchers played fifes or pipes, so it makes sense that there may have been rats in the story or maybe he thought they did. It's really almost a glaring omission that rats didn't appear as part of the original story because the piper coming through town and just taking the kids, it's like, well, what is he normally doing? Is he just going to different towns and taking kids? No, normally he goes to a town and gets it rid of rats. So you can see how it got in there, but by the same token, we can't find any written version of the story for the first 300 years as it relates to the particular incident in Hamlin anyway, that details
1: rats. I've seen some comments in some forums where people believe from the original inscription, I believe, in the church. Yes. That there wasn't even a rat catcher, that children simply disappeared. And that's not true. There was a person that was strange that did show up in the earliest accounts. Right. And was uh, documented in the church stained glass window the original of which has since been lost. But there was a stranger always tied to the children. They just didn't go wander off. And some people will say as we get into the theories here that, well, it was just the plague and they all died of disease. And so the town, they just made up the story. Well, it didn't seem that way to us. There did indeed seem to be a stranger of some sort that had a connection to the disappearance from the onset. So I wanted to clear that up because, yeah, I've seen some comments saying like, well, no, these kids just disappeared. There weren't There wasn't any type of stranger tied to the story in the beginning, and and that does not seem to be the case.
0: Hi, I'm Adele, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. It's time for our theory section, so let's get down to business on that. Now, the first theories that usually come up when you're talking about the Pied Piper are the metaphorical ones, but there are many, many more. And tonight, I thought it would be fun to reverse our usual order of discussion by starting with the fringe stuff instead of ending with it. And it helps, of course, because there's way less data on the fringe theories because scientists won't examine them or they're just some theory that's been posited by one person on some remote corner of the internet and there's not a whole (laughs) lot to it. But uh, this way we're going to start out with the shorter, less involved theories and work our way towards the ones that have a little more to talk about behind them. So on that note, let's start out with alien abduction. (laughs) Why not? It's the
1: most uh, fascinating. Actually, it's not the most fascinating in my book. It's... One
0: that's out there, it's low hanging fruit. You got to pluck it, and we can't not mention it, or as you say, the inbox will fill up. But to quote Lethal (laughs) Weapon, this is pretty thin, of course. What in Lethal Weapon, they were saying that thin, yeah, they they were saying that ironically, I guess. But all uh, right, it is thin, all right, well, it's (laughs) thin, there's nothing here. Other than an idea, from what I can tell. There's no... Okay, come on. It's it's clearly the Disco Wizard. Oh, the Disco Wizard is benevolent, my friend. He does not kidnap children. How do you know? He was floating over to playground. He could have taken kids then in, in West Virginia, but he didn't, so... I don't know if this is in your notes, but
1: I want to hit on this. Might as well do it now. Yeah. This stranger to me also sounds a lot like The Grinning Man or variations of it. One, in particular, described by David Weatherly on a road trip in North Carolina, where they come around a bend and there's a tall, very colorfully dressed, weird stranger, tall, thin, impossible grin across his face, just standing there in the bend in the weeds. Yeah. And they were like, oh my God. And, you know, his friend who's driving said like, we're not stopping. We're not stopping. I've told this story before, of course. And then David finally got the courage to, we got to go see what that is. And they turn the car around, they come back and there's a spot where the weeds have been disturbed. But the description of him, yes, some things are not lining up exactly with the piper, except for the dress, in that it is pied, it is multicolored, it's meant to get attention in some weird way, very kind of outlandish, not a horrible looking guy, but of course the garish grin on the grinning man puts you off your eggs. Now, the description <laughs> of the pied piper uh, from the earlier accounts mention him as a handsome, appealing fellow he was younger. He wasn't freakish looking. He was just very striking. He stood out from everybody else. And his clothing did as well. But of course, when you upset him, when you cheat him, he comes back dressed differently. As a hunter. So just to make sure that it was touched upon, I want to say that the Pied Piper, for me, fits that strange intruder category. It's a strange and unusual person who shows up and has some kind of odd effect on a group or individual. And that He just looks different. Now, again, I want to stress that he didn't look like a man in black. He didn't have odd features. He wasn't described that way. Other than that, he was, yeah, strikingly handsome, young. uh, He seemed very healthy and fit of good nature. So it was mostly his clothing, at least in this early description here, that seems to be different than the regular townsfolk. But he is a
0: mysterious intruder
1: that shows up at a place and vanishes.
0: There's also, I think, probably a lack of vocabulary to describe unusual people or people that might seem somewhat alien back then, because that was an idea that was foreign, I think, during those times. And in terms of class structure, there was a wide disparity in the appearance of poor people and impoverished people and people who were wealthy. So there's that too, and you you could very easily have had people from varying walks of life who had never seen anyone like somebody who simply was wealthy, but by the same token, it could be some creature from another planet. Those two (laughs) things might be the same thing to them, in a way. Uh You know? Uh Because I'm just speculating in the dark here. He wasn't
1: described as like, this guy's a freak. Look at that smile. It goes from ear to ear, literally. Right. He was just described as a normal person, but his clothing stood out and it was very unusual and, and maybe he's just a traveling foreigner, apparently. But obviously, he could communicate with the local town townsfolk. So it seems to be that he was from Germany or could speak German in the later versions anyway. He's thought to have been able to communicate and negotiate his services for a fee and was able to communicate with the local townsfolk. In the earliest description, though, that gets a little hazy, as we said. He may not have had any interaction with the adults other than to somehow whisk the children away under some kind of spell.
0: Well, let's look at what the alien abduction would look like. In that story... Probably what would happen or what I guess a few people, as I said, have posited is that the instead of disappearing into a mountain, what they got into was a large UFO Uh and the entrancing music that was playing was some kind of sophisticated technology that put people into, again, entrancing into some sort of trance. Uh huh. The five tones from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There you go. There, that could be People d- being drawn to Devil's Tower somehow, like a piper? Yeah. By the way, this puts aside the fact that nobody, as you said, reported anything flying or anything other than a human being being present. Mm-hmm. And I, I tried to make some kind of connection, because that's what we do, to any medieval UFO sighting, and all I came up with was our favorite woodcut, the celestial mm-hmm. phenomenon over Nuremberg. Now, if you don't know what that is, you can see a picture of it in the images. Put a picture of it for us. And uh, with our show... <laughs> And that's this crazy woodcut that shows this battle in the sky, a UFO war in the sky. You've seen it. You just don't realize you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, you live under a rock. It's all over the internet. But check this out. Nuremberg is only 270 miles southeast of Hamlin. Could it be connected? Just think about that. The Nuremberg UFO Sky War took place in 1561, 277 years later. Wait, 270 miles, 277 years. Coincidence? Synchronicity? No, it's, it's just a coincidence. Actually, it's not even that. It's just two completely unrelated numbers. I know I'm poking fun at this one, and I'm doing that admitting <laughs> that I believe in synchronicities, UFOs, and even alien abductions. They may all exist. There's just, in my opinion, there's no evidence in this case. How do you know? Well, I guess I don't know. They're not there. connected. I wasn't there. If it,
1: <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying is uh, we, we all have a point of rationale here. If it happened within the same year, would that make it connected for you? If it happened 10 years later on the anniversary, does that connect it for you? If it's 277 years later, why is that not connected? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not saying it is. I'm just, <laughs> just posing that to you. Let's move uh, on to the pedophiles. Okay. Wait, I just want to say something. Okay. Uh, the, the explanations about the battle over Nuremberg, yes. as it's sometimes known, that's yes. one where the explanations, the rational, logical, sensible explanations for what these medieval people saw sometimes, to me, verge on the ridiculous. They're crazier like, than
0: if they had actually seen a bunch of UFOs fighting.
1: Yeah. Yes, I agree, I agree. Well, sun dogs, yeah, sun uh, it's, dogs. A, they had the dancing plague, they had ergot poisoning, and so they were all hallucinating. Now, sometimes that did that did happen in a village in France, apparently, where people were freaking out, but they all didn't see the same thing at the same time.
0: I'm not sure where this pedophile idea started, but the idea that maybe some predator had grabbed all these kids. I think grabbing 130 kids in one day would be impossible. So maybe it would be he was doing this over time and then it got made into an allegory and eventually they caught him. I'm not positive, but I feel like this goes back to this book that came out in 1992 by author William Manchester entitled A World Lit Only by Fire. Now, Manchester passed away in 2004. He was an award-winning author, biographer, historian and a professor emeritus of history at Wesleyan University. In this book, Manchester posited that the Pied Piper was a vicious serial pedophile who dismembered all of his victims, leaving their remains scattered and hard to find. The only problem with this is that while Manchester was an educated and respected historian, the book was a kind of vanity project for him. It's something he wrote to try his hand at what I think you could safely call historical fiction. He himself made a point of saying how the book was written entirely from secondary sources of information. And to be clear, we haven't read the book, but it appears to me that he took his extensive knowledge of the era, which he had because he was a historian, and much like the Brothers Grimm did, attempted to remove the whitewashing of history by painting a much darker picture of the medieval era that, while in all probability, is probably more realistic than a lot of the things you read in terms of what life might have really been like, in terms of actual events, it was anecdotal and based on conjecture as far as the facts go. So that's what it seems like happened. So I think a part of him was like, oh, I'm going to tell this interesting story. This was a New York Times bestseller. So, you know, I'm going to tell this interesting story and it's going to be fun to read. And this is what I think this time period was really like. However, he was then putting famous characters from history into it, And more or less making up things about them, including the Pied Piper and Robin Hood and a lot of other people. Oh. Yeah. So it's like that. But listen to this. His very own author's note says the following, and this is a quote. I got this from a Wikipedia page on the book itself. It is, after all, a slight work with no scholarly pretensions. All the sources are secondary and few are new. I have not mastered recent scholarship on the early 16th century, end quote. Well, get on it, man. Yeah, that's his own quote. Well, it's too late (laughs) now. He's gone. But I think when a lot of the sources you find refer to the idea that it may have been a murderous pedophile, they're likely referring to this book from 1992, which, of course, compared to the year 1281 is like yesterday. That's not Mm. to say that some horrific perpetrator might have been at the root of whatever happened in Hamelm or Hamlin, but it's more to say that there may be more weight on this idea than there should be, because a lot of folks read the book of admitted speculation and took it to be historically accurate, which I think people do all the time with historical fiction, even though Manchester himself had said it was more of a creative endeavor.
1: Yeah, I'll buy that. I'll go along with that, Uh, his explanation here. He's having a little fun. He's written a lot of scholarly stuff in the past, and it's a lurid... Proposition here. There's yeah. some darkness to it, but the fact that it's uh just the dismembering, yeah. And that a small village, I believe, especially back then, they're going to go through every likely suspect and uh, treat them the same way. They, yeah, it's
0: going to be real hard to get away with yeah. this 130 times. To- I mean, you're up there with Vlad the Impaler. You know, like what? Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> it seems that we can maybe look to the case of Elizabeth Bathory. Yes. In med- medieval times, uh, you're looking at Texas Justice. Yeah. They're going to go round up everybody who they think is the, the loo the the werewolf, whatever, and they're just going to torture them until they get a, an answer one way or the other, and they don't really care which one.
0: Yes, and they're going to kill like 20 people, and one of them will probably have been the bad guy.
1: Maybe, back for them. Uh, also, oh, did you say 1281 because—was uh, there something prior to
0: 1284? Oh, no, I've got the year wrong. You're right. It's 1284. I'm
1: sorry. Around that time, anyway— there could be documentation about this event that has not yet been discovered. There were several at the time that have been lost that people read, especially uh, some official ones like the town chronicle right. of Hamel, and, and that it was in the newsletter for the people that, hey, this happened. And so, in the short period of time afterwards, within 20 years, it was still being referenced.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, this would have had to have been a sociopath who was good at blending in and uh, capable of getting away with this, which you could see. For a small number of victims, but not for 130. And especially, like you said, in a small town, it seems like even if he was taking a victim a day, which seems like a pretty high count, that would take a third of a year. It just doesn't seem like it's going to go on that long. I, no. It just doesn't. It doesn't track for me. Yeah, it doesn't for myself either. in that
1: we get letters all the time of uh, people with some very creative theories on things we've covered, and some make sense, some make sense to them, some they're just postulating. I imagine some people will make the case that, well, look, Elizabeth Bathory was accused of abducting, torturing, and doing away with over six hundred and fifty girls, a little bit older than the age of the children in the Piper story, but. She was documented as having some case against her at the time, and, and when we went over it, it's like, well, how did she do it? Well, one, she was a noblewoman. So if you believe that story, then the townsfolk, which were under her rule, were sending their young girls to work in the castle to get some finishing And to have a a job where they learn courtly ways. And so she had a steady supply. And very low, very low
0: graduation rate, however. On the (laughs) finishing talk about finishing.
1: Yeah, you just talked about different classes earlier where there's a there's a miscommunication from the peasantry to the nobles of like what's really going on, and we haven't seen our daughter in four years. Yeah. I do believe that there was something going on there where maybe it wasn't that high, but let's say at least over 100, as we have with the Piper story. Well, that took place over years. So it wasn't all in one day, and the setup was different. It wasn't a stranger coming to town and them all following her out. Everybody knew who she was. Right. I think in Bathory's case, people start to suspect, but they couldn't do anything about it. She's the most powerful woman in the region. Right. So it took a long time, and finally the attention of other nobility to, we got to put a stop to this. Yeah. Yeah, so no connection into another medieval case, uh, no connection for me to something that was serialized or not just some bad guy living on the edge of town who was preying on children in a very short amount of time, and suddenly 130 are missing.
0: Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Okay. All right, well, let's move on then to The Plague. The Black Death. There we go. Okay. The first story you usually hear about the Pied Piper is a story about the Bubonic Plague or the Black Plague. That's why it features rats so prominently, and it's something the whole world at the time was familiar with, which helps explain how it permeated the global culture. But let's take a look at that. According to various well-sourced Wikipedia pages, there are three types of plague, septicemic, pneumonic, and the infamous bubonic. Now, the bubonic plague is the most famous one, also known as the Black Plague. It was spread not predominantly by rats, but mainly by fleas on rats that then went on to bite people. However, coming into contact with the body fluids of a dead plague-infected rat or any other animal could also cause contraction. But generally, when someone was bitten by an infected flea, the bubonic form of the infection would travel to the lymph nodes, causing them to swell. Symptoms would include fever, headaches, and vomiting, and also would show up within about one to seven days of initial exposure. Mortality in the old days would have been from 30 to 90 percent. The bubonic plague was estimated to have killed anywhere from 75 to 200 million people. Although they can't be sure, they think it was likely originated in Central or East Asia, spreading on fleas, living on the black rats that merchant ships all had on board. And these ships were uh, taking goods around the known world at the time, or traveling with Mongol armies along the Silk Road. That's another place that these uh, rats might have been getting around. So scholars aren't positive, but they think it killed 30 to 60% of Europe's entire population, reducing it from an estimated 475 million down to 350 to uh, 375 million. And recovering from that hit took 200 years. So that's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, obviously, millions upon millions of stories would have been told about something so widespread and traumatic. There's just one catch. That stuff all started around the 1340s and peaked from 1347 to 1351. That's at least 60 years after the Pied Pipers supposedly came to Hamelin. The very earliest dates attributed to the plague were the early 1330s in Kyrgyzstan, still epidemiologists will tell you that it no doubt existed in small pockets prior to that, you know, it just wasn't identified yet, but it's still not a good fit for reasons that are going to become clearer as we look at how the plague works here next. So that's the first feedback on the bubonic plague. And so there were other
1: instances throughout history of this happening, but not in that time frame. Then, if we're looking at yeah, the twelve eighties, twelve eighty four. Yes,
0: and those were different. Yeah, thirteen forty seven. They're also different. They manifest differently, and none of them. And this is important. None of them single out children. So that's the other thing to think about as it relates to the Pied Piper. But yes, that's a super valid point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this tie-in with the plague also takes the Pied Piper story and makes the Piper himself more of an allegory, and that he is either a savior to these German towns, that he led the rats away, which the people made a correlation to bringing the plague eventually, and so he was seen as a symbolically heroic figure that saved these towns, or that the Piper himself was a symbol of death, bringing death to these towns, and the death of these children who died en masse, at least uh, over a hundred, and were buried and and taken off somewhere else where they were not infectious or their corpses were not infectious and buried away in a mountain. So this addition and connection to the plague takes the Piper himself as a character and in several respects, places on him different meaning in that maybe he isn't real. However, he's a symbol for either a saving factor for the plague that somehow the rats went away and spared the town where half the people died or
0: he was a symbol of the bringer of death himself. A lot of people still make a connection, though, to disease and the story of the Pied Piper. And again, we always look for those sources. We try to figure out what might be the primary source, especially these days when you do when you do an online research, and most of your research is coming from blogs and uh, short articles and, I guess, popular journals and that sort of thing. It's different from the stuff that you find in academic papers, etc. But all of those things are generally drawing on one particular academic paper. And that's going to bring me to this discussion of murine typhus. And this is different from the plague, still a bad thing, but this guy had come up with this whole theory and he wrote an essay about it, which is pretty fascinating. This was written in the academic journal, the American Journal of Dermatopathology. And uh, I'm just going <laughs> to, very good. Well, I've been working on it for about a week. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I'm just going to read you the definition of dermatopathology. Dermatopathology is a joint subspecialty of dermatology and pathology or surgical pathology that focuses on the study of cutaneous diseases at a microscopic and molecular level. It also encompasses analyses of the potential causes of skin diseases at a basic level. That's from Wikipedia, Mm -hmm. so I had to Mm -hmm. look it up. Mm -hmm. But uh, the bottom line is you're studying how disease that is spread by touch spreads on a molecular level and a little bit higher. So anyway, this article that we are going to be talking about is under the subheading of The Arts in Dermatopathology, and it appeared in volume two, number one, in the spring of 1980 in that journal. It was titled The Pied Piper of Hamlin, A Medical Historical Interpretation, and was by Dr. John Dirks. That's D-I-R-C-K-X. And he is referenced in a lot. When you start looking into the Pied Piper, this paper comes up a lot. Dr. Dirks graduated medical school from Marquette in 1963 and is listed as having devoted several books and numerous articles to the language, literature, and history of medicine. That's a pretty fascinating topic. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, the paper comes up a lot, and it's mostly because everyone is citing the same source, which of course we're doing here. But the difference is we're Mm. going to take a closer look than most of the other people. Now, the article is a super interesting analytical essay from Dr. Dirks about what he thinks the origin of the Pied Piper legend may have been. He's just created this whole scenario, and he is clearly extremely well-versed in pathology, and his theory centers around the idea of a form of typhus known as murine typhus. That's M-U-R-I-N-E. I might be saying it wrong, but.
1: Uh, yeah, I've I'm also sure. heard murine. So okay. it Okay. See, on I am saying people. it wrong. See? So no, no, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's, it's there's no right or wrong. It's another way of people say it. Yeah, so, I can see murine the headline or, now. Moron
0: murine. tries to say murine. Okay. <laughs> but <So>. it
1: also <laughs> reminds me of the eyedrops. Remember the uh, the oh, murine yes. is a brand of eyedrops. That's yes. murine, isn't it? That's murines. Exactly. The car- it's
0: spelled the same way, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. That's pretty bold, right? To name your eye drops after a form of typhus? Competitor to uh, Viseed, yes. Right, right. Well, I'd like to have Forrest share a few passages here and there from this paper, uh, which Uh again, I didn't ask him about. Uh, Yeah, where he's talking about the plague. And Dr. Dirks states, quote, plague is not, however, especially virulent for children, end quote, which is an important point about the plague, because he's saying, no, it wasn't the plague. I don't think it was the plague. He then posits the idea of murine or murine typhus, explaining that it is uh, like the plague and that it's transmitted by rat fleas. So
1: before I read uh, some thoughts here about Dr. Dirks' theory, I think this is one of the better scenarios for a medical condition that I've come across myself, I, I think it's pretty solid. So for me, this is one of the the bigger contenders for a plausible scenario if the story was connected to an actual medical condition. So there is one hole in it, though, that we're going to get oh, to at the end. Just Yes, so you you're know. right. So he details a scenario where rats come in on a trade vessel. Okay, so far so good. They are carrying murine typhus in their fleas, but are also stricken with early isolated versions of plague. So these rats are doomed. The rats get off the vessels, work their way into town, and they all die. And after dying, the children of Hamelin may be actually playing with the dead carcasses or even being paid to gather them up and discard them. That seems more likely. Like, here's a a couple of uh, Gilder's kids. Get rid of these dead carcasses without really knowing how virulent they could be. But during this chore, for which they are being paid or not, or they're just doing it for fun, poking at rats with sticks and throwing them around, they are bitten by the fleas carrying the murine typhus. And the theory also goes that it has to be the typhus because the typhus would kill the children quickly. The plague, on the other hand, would not be as effective or quick. And some people did recover from the plague. We Actually did get into the Black Death quite a bit because it was, uh, it came up several times as a topic in our Great Courses Plus yes. uh, spots. So it was really interesting watching a lot of those courses that, uh, that detailed how they believe it was transmitted and how it works within the fleas and that this viral infection causes the fleas. It, it basically, it messes with the fleas' digestive system, giving them something like acid reflux It's just fascinating what the current theories are. But in this case, here with the Pied Piper, Dirks also goes on to explain something about the color, the piedness of it. And he adds that the kids would have been afflicted with pink, red, and purple blotches. And this partly could explain uh, symbolically what could be tied in with Pied Piper, being motley colored, multicolored. He explains that the adults would have been fine because the fleas carrying the typhus would all have already died from it themselves. By the time the townspeople realized that the children were stricken or afflicted with this. So right. that's kind of his, his logic here. It's so far pretty solid here. Another fascinating fact that Dr. Dirks mentions is that according to an old bohemian tradition, end quotes, the rat catchers knew a certain note would unfailingly attract rats when played nine times on a pipe. Presumably, the piping was considered an imitation of the squealing of rats and mice, end quote. Well, we all know that animals can certainly hear tones that we humans cannot. They are affected by them. I think of a dog whistle. Yep. I think of uh, John Lennon putting in the high-pitched noise
0: just to annoy your dog in the White Album. And that whole thing comes back to what we said in the introduction tonight from the simplified version of the Pied Piper story entitled The Rat Catcher and the Deutsche Sagen from the Brothers Grimm in 1816 that talks about the pipe there. So Dr. Dirks adds that rat catchers or legends around them indicate that they were thought of as sorcerers or magicians who would often play cruel pranks on decent citizens. The trickster. Exactly. He breaks down the legend of the Pied Piper and draws the conclusion that it's a metaphorical tale that connects unusual circumstances and a disease that affected only children, as he describes, that then becomes connected with either a personification of the disease in the Pied Piper or a connection to a real legendary rat catcher from the period. He comes up with this whole scenario. And so what I wanted to do here was share Dr. Dirk's conclusion here. And again, this is from the American Journal of Dermatopathology, volume two, number one, spring of 1980. And this appears on page 45. By way of
1: conclusion, let us retell the Pied Piper legend in more literal terms, basing our modifications of the original on modern scientific and historical information, with a leaven of imagination, which I hope the reader will not find excessive. In the year 1284, a remarkable catastrophe occurred in Hamelin. Early in the summer, a great number of rats died, both aboard ships moored at the docks and on land, so that the Veser was full of their carcasses, and the wharves and alleys were strewn with them. Everywhere one saw children dragging or carrying dead rats about by their tails. Children vied with each other in flinging them over fences and even through open windows. Some of the burghers paid boys to collect dead rats and sacks and dump them into the river. Just when the people were beginning to congratulate themselves on the decline in the number of their rodent enemies, a hideous plague struck down many of the children of the town. One by one, those who had handled the dead rats were seized with fever and chills, violent headaches and raving. Pink and red spots broke out all over their bodies, and grew purplish and coalesced as death approached. A pall of grief and terror descended over the town, and the streets rang with the wails of the bereaved. In all, 130 children were lost. The parents of the victims and other adults were generally spared, though a few of the women, including the mayor's daughter, who had gone from house to house and nursed a great many of the doomed children, themselves fell sick and died. Among the children who recovered, some were found to have lost their hearing, and one or two were left blind. The grieving elders sent an army of laborers with picks and spades up the Koppenberg to a piece of level ground, where they dug a long trench to receive the dead. On June 26th, the Feast of Saints John and Paul, a funeral mass, was sung at dawn in the principal church. Afterward, a long procession wound its melancholy way out of the town and over the mountain paths. The mottled corpses carried on litters or borne in the arms of their mothers for the last time before being laid to rest in a common grave. Bedtime stories sometimes prove more disquieting than entertaining to small children. Bears and wolves, dwarves and witches may terrify a toddler instead of amusing him. No doubt many a parent has soothed a troubled child with the assurance that the tale of the vindictive Piper and Motley who snatched away the children of Hamlin
0: is only a
1: story. But is it?
0: Well, Dr. Dirks has got, uh, you know, I think he's probably retired by now. This paper came Mm -hmm. out a long time ago, but he definitely had another potential career in folklore and legend telling, I think. I I like his depiction. It's very well detailed and it all makes sense. And this would have been hard for him to find out in 1980 because uh, the lack of access to online research like you and I have now is not available. However, he did obviously have university-level libraries at his disposal. But what he appears to not have known at the time, and it's something that we pointed out earlier, was that as far as history shows, rats weren't a part of this story until it was 300 years old. So that's not to say that it's impossible that rats weren't involved at the start. Mm -hmm. We can't find any written history before 275 years later that rats were in the story. So they certainly could have been, but we've already shown that we're predating the worst of the bubonic plague, although we're not predating serious illnesses in general. And we um, were predating the rats as well. So the rat part of that, that removes a central pillar from this hypothesis that he put forward in 1980. However, overall, it's a very convincing tale, especially when you look at it from a pathology standpoint. I think it, right. it makes sense. And if anybody's going to know about that, clearly this guy is. So
1: Yeah, I, I think, like I said, out of all the medical explanations, this one uh, ranks higher for me than than others. And yes, that is the main flaw I see with this, is that there was no mention of rats early on in the original accounts, unless Dr. Dirks is trying to make a connection that, well, maybe there were rats, but they weren't mentioned because they weren't understood or that connection was not understood. So that part of the rat story was left out, but that's the real cause, was murine typhus and fleas, essentially, tied with rats, but not originally connected to the story. So, but barring that, I will have to go with you on saying that I, yeah, it's a great theory, but again, not really nailing the original account for which there was an eyewitness
0: This is Alicia in South Carolina, home of the Lizard Man. And when
1: I'm not looking for skinwalkers, I listen to astonishing legends. Let's get back to the show.
0: Well, there's a couple things we always have to talk about with these mysterious medieval illnesses. One of them is, as you already alluded to earlier, ergotism. The other one is dancing madness. Some people think they're the same thing, but mm-hmm. there are some differences here. So I, wanted to, I want to thank Marissa Ball and the Astonishing Research Corps for digging this up. This is pretty interesting. She's got a quote here that I wanted to read about this. Well, firstly, I want to read an excerpt from the Wikipedia page on dancing mania. Further outbreaks occurred during the 13th century, including one in 1237, so we're in the right time period here, in which Mm -hmm. a large group of children traveled from Erfurt to Arnstadt, about 20 kilometers or 12 miles, jumping and dancing all the way. So this has a marked similarity to the legend of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, a legend that originated at around the same time. There is another incident in 1278, very close to the Pied Piper story involving about 200 people dancing on a bridge over the river Meuse in Germany, resulting in its collapse. Many of the survivors were restored to full health at a nearby chapel dedicated to St. Vitus. So that's from the Wikipedia. And then here is an excerpt that Marissa found from a book called The Evolution of the Pied Piper by Bernard Queenan. Yeah, we mentioned him prominently in part one. Right. And so this is a quote from that book. The children or young people might even have succumbed to an outbreak of the dancing madness, another frightening phenomenon of medieval Europe in which dozens of the inhabitants of a locality would inexplicably be seized by a collective impulse to rise and roam together in a jerking, twisting frenzy until they literally danced themselves into collapse and even death. Modern medical researchers suggest that the dancing madness originated in the toxic effect of a fungus which infected growing grain crops, and which would survive and ferment to produce hallucinogenic substances such as ergot throughout the processes of being harvested, stored under unsatisfactory conditions, milled into flour and baked into bread. Instances have been investigated in recent years of similar outbreaks in country districts of Europe. Uh And while there is a tie to ergotism, which we're going to talk about a little bit more here in a second, That's not a confirmation. It's not known to definitely be the source of the dancing madness. So dancing mania is still a legit mystery that is still, to this day, unsolved. There's no consensus on it. And here's some other weird facts about it. The people that are dancing can't stand the color black. They have often traveled from somewhere else to the place where they are dancing. People who don't join in on the dancing are very poorly treated. I guess they're insulted or yelled at or pushed around. The folks dance until they collapse, sometimes they break ribs, sometimes they die. There are people today, medical professionals and historians, who think it is a form of mass hysteria, not ergotism. So there's something going on there, too. Now, apparently there are musicians, and this ties into the Pied Piper legend, who would sometimes accompany these people that are dancing in an effort to help, but I guess it only encouraged more folks to join in to the problem.
1: Yeah, another mysterious aspect was that this dancing and the music seemed to alleviate the symptoms according to contemporary accounts. And that in in one case, the town decided like, okay, if dancing is helping, let's get a band out there. And They promoted rounds and rounds and constant playing by musicians to just keep dancing because maybe if they kept dancing, it would alleviate or or cure this problem altogether. But what they found was that people would just dance until they collapsed, so they couldn't help themselves. So it was kind of a, a mania. There may have been a psychosomatic
0: aspect to this phenomena. Yeah, listen to this quote about this British psychiatrist, Simon Wesley, talking about it. Mass anxiety hysteria, quote, consists of episodes of acute anxiety occurring mainly in school children. Prior tension is absent, and the rapid spread is by visual contact, End quote. That's pretty interesting. And I got to say, I was poo-pooing this at first, but there's some compelling information here. But still, the question then becomes, where did all the kids go? Why did none of them ever return? And also, was the piper just somebody who was trying to alleviate the condition? But still, even if you were to say this is the dancing madness, You'd think there would have been survivors, and it might have been indicated and also just connected to the other instances of this happening, as opposed to being this seemingly rogue event, which is what it is in the annals of history.
1: If the original account happened and the first reportings, the original ones, were accurate, at least as to who was there, the number of children, there being a piper, them disappearing, well, it's their children. They didn't wait a couple of days to go looking for them. As soon as it was reported by the one woman who ran after them and had to turn back, she was carrying an infant herself in her arms, a babysitter, she reported it to the town. They went out looking for the kids, probably within a few hours, you could assume, at least, and they couldn't find them anywhere. So a group of manic children, you wonder how far could they get into the raw, untamed woods unless it was someplace into a cave, and if they were in a cave, why couldn't they have been found? If they had died or collapsed or were murdered, some evidence of that would have been found. So the original count goes is that there was no evidence at all. They looked for days and days. they They commemorated the disappearance because it was so tragic. A hundred and thirty children. That's a lot yeah. of families being affected
0: also, it's hard to go spelunking when you're gyrating and freaking out and having to listen <laughs> to music As you uh, getting into yeah, getting in and out of a cave while you're doing all that. I mean, getting in a cave is hard enough already. Right, so, And then getting in so far that you can't be found. Although I do have something to say about caves here coming up, but still. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. When I was a kid, I wondered, well, I'm not sure this story is true. How could that happen? Like, because you, you, of course, only knew it from your experience as a child yourself. It's like, I don't know if a guy playing a flute would be that enchanting that I'd go off, leave my parents and just go off into the woods with this guy. Stranger danger back then wasn't as prevalent, but we were certainly aware of it. And of course, one of the things about the Pied Piper story is that thematically as a motif is the idea of separation anxiety from the children and also from the parents being separated as families. That's another trope of why it keeps getting passed on and remains one of the prime stories of childhood and and of legend in that it's a very essential theme. Imagine, you know, uh, your own child being absconded with. It's awful. So that's why it resonates. But I did wonder as a kid, like, why do these kids go off with this guy? Obviously, this looked dangerous. But then I thought as a kid, like, well, I don't know, if I was in a big group and everybody had decided to go do this and it seemed fun, maybe you would follow this guy for little ways not into the woods or a cave, but I could see the party atmosphere of like, well, you know, sometimes you want to get away from your parents and, and go have fun. But yeah, it was scary to me as a kid, but I just wondered like, what would it take? Were they all hypnotized in some way? And of course I thought, well, that had to be a magic flute. Like he obviously knew magic because at the end of the day, we wouldn't have all gone off like that with a stranger.
0: I think metaphorically and otherwise we can't, dodge the fact and this was something one of our researchers Lauren had taken a look at Robert Browning's poem which obviously took a lot of creative license with the overall story but one thing that she talks about that does connect back to the original story and even the earlier versions of it are the parallels between the piper and the devil and yeah the ability to beguile folks or hypnotize them or making some kind of bargain with them all of these things tie in and those parts of the story are as old as time itself. So there is some question as to how much of that is allegorical, how much of it relates to what really happened, if any of it. It muddies the water, as does everything with this story. But
1: yeah, well, that, that's the thing we brought up in part one about Browning's poem is that there are two ways to look at it. He, in connection with the socio-political climate of the time and the ill treatment of children, especially children working in yeah. the mines and in factories, and it was around the Industrial Revolution, and they were being abused for their labor, that this condition has to change or something will come in, some force will come in and lure them away from all this abuse, or perhaps, as we said in part one. What he's referring to is some kind of heaven that the children are whisked away to. But on the other hand, looking at that Browning treatment, it's almost as if they were being tricked, you could say, as well, by some kind of devil saying like, oh, this land is so much better if you come with me. It's free ice cream 24-7, and and it's glorious. You're going to love it. And the kids who didn't get to go were feeling left out. And so there's two ways to look at that. I think Browning's version was more of the, well, maybe these children had died and they had gone to some kind of heaven and they are now much better off than Industrial Revolution England, at least in that scenario. So...
0: Well and and I want to come back to that in a minute with one of the other theories. We can't go out of the dancing mania section though without getting a little more specific on ergotism which you in the past on our show have called the swamp gas explanation of medieval <laughs> problems, the, medieval legends and mysteries. It's the uh, mass hysterical owl, yeah, sandhill
1: crane <laughs> hybrid creature of dancing. That's what happened. Uh, medieval yeah. <laughs> medieval mysteries, yeah. I'm sure
0: they could apply it even to the Nuremberg, you know, in terms of the mass hysteria component. Yeah, yeah, you're kind. right.
1: People have other yeah. than uh yeah, they saw something in the sky which was like a a natural aerial phenomenon which they all interpreted because they were so
0: feverishly religious as large crosses and uh big dots. Let's talk a little bit about what ergotism is. Ergotism is the effect of long-term ergot poisoning traditionally due to the ingestion of the alkaloids produced by the claviceps purpurea fungus from the Latin noun clava, meaning club, and the suffix seps, meaning head, the purple club-headed fungus that infects rye and other cereals. Convulsive symptoms include painful seizures and spasms, diarrhea, paresthesias, itching, mental effects including mania or psychosis, headache, nausea, and vomiting, Usually, the gastrointestinal effects precede central nervous system effects. All right, so here's the thing about that. There's no mention of any of those other symptoms with the children of Hamlin in any of the stories. I mean, aside from the dancing that you could maybe say is spasm or is painful seizure, you might be able to make that connection. There's not any talk of diarrhea, itching, uh, mental incapacitation, nausea, vomiting. None of that comes up in any of the 29 versions of the story for instance, that Dr. Ashleman has on his website, that doesn't come up. So the other thing about ergot poisoning is it's a long-term thing. It takes time to yeah. present and it wouldn't come all at once. And also right. it wouldn't affect just the children. I think it's too much of a leap.
1: So unless the children alone were eating a special bread cooked with the you know infected rye or grains that had the fungus in it and not the adults,
0: that seems too much of a leap. I agree. Yeah. There's another idea associated with the legend of the Pied Piper that centers around the concept that the kids were rounded up either forcefully or voluntarily or under false pretenses and kidnapped to help settle new regions. One of our researchers in the Ark, who actually grew up within 100 kilometers of Hamelin, points out that during this time, there was a significant movement to settle Eastern Europe. And this movement was driven by folks known as locators. Locators. The locators were hired by the lords to attract potential settlers. They would wear fancy and colorful clothes to give a false impression of wealth that could be earned in the East. And get this, they were often accompanied by a drummer or a piper. This researcher, who goes by Falk, referred to us to a Wikipedia page on Ostsiedlung, which is German for East Settling. This page covers, quote, the eastward migration and settlement of Germanic-speaking peoples from the Holy Roman Empire. Listen to this portion of the entry. The settlers were mostly landless, younger children of noble families who could not inherit property. Entrepreneur adventurers, often from lower noble descent, called locators, played a recruiting, negotiating, and coordinating role and established new villages juridically and geophysically. End quote. That's attributed to a book entitled Transylvania and the Transylvanian Saxons by Conrad Gundisch. Now, here's another passage from a German article that Falk found on the subject. It's called The Secret of the Pied Piper from Hamlin and was published on a German website called Culture by Jan von Flocken in April of 2011. And we will have a link to it. I promise Forrest will do it. This passage offers more details about these locators. Keep in mind, this was translated for us by Google, so it's a little chunky Forrest, I'm going to let you read this part because uh, twice just this month when I called various people that I needed to talk to about paying some bills and stuff on the phone, I was called yeah. ma'am. So I'm going to let you. I no think you way. Be reading. Really? Yes. Oh. yes. Well, ma'am, I don't know. Like I went to lunch with a friend <laughs> and we thought for a minute he had left his wallet at the restaurant. So I called the restaurant. I was like, I think my friend left his wallet there. And goes, ma'am, I can check on it. And I was like, all right. Oh, why I didn't. So, um, that that goes never, back have, to I, my favorite I, insult that I've received: thin voice control that. freak. No, I love it. It's yeah. hilarious. Well, it's so not so a a high shirt. pitched.
1: Is that that doesn't translate <laughs> to me as thin? But uh, anyway, I just <laughs> okay. I think they were busy. I think they were harried. Something something happened. Yes. I, I would not take that personally. Yes, ma'am. All okay. right, here here we go. The future settlement of the East always happened on behalf of a noble or spiritual landlord. He assured the settlers of previously surveyed land that they could cultivate as free farmers. The practical part, beginning with the recruitment of colonists, was taken over by a locator, placemaker, a kind of settlement entrepreneur. This locator often wore brightly colored clothes to attract attention. He had a whistle or drummer with him to attract acoustic attention. In the marketplace, he mostly addressed young people and tried to advertise them. The appeal for a thirst for adventure also played a role, as did the prospect of free land allotments. In the case of Hamel, it is very possible that such a locator could win over city youth, including married couples with small children. The main focus of eastern colonization in the 13th century was on Moravia, East Prussia, and Transylvania in the Balkans. According to legend, the children in Transylvania should have turned up again. This country was more than 1,400 kilometers from the old home. With the state of communication technology at that time, the parents certainly never heard from their children again. They were
0: really never to be seen again. This seems kind of plausible, especially if the conditions were particularly bad in the town and the poverty was a problem. And not only did the kids want to get out of it, but the parents may be wanting a better life for their kids. The older folks are not going to be recruited to go settle new territory. Could it be that they all agreed that the kids should go or the kids went without permission and that makes them disappear? And there's scholars out there, though, that will tell you a lot of the German theories have a confirmation bias toward an outcome for the children that skew towards more benevolent ideas. And so, right, right, because locally, if you're digging into this, you, you want the story to be one that it doesn't have an unhappy ending.
1: Well, certainly not that these German parents were tired of their kids and just wanted to send them off or maybe a few guilders with some stranger. Right. But I think for me, this has to work though, in that the age of the children in the original account has to be much higher than. Yeah. I could see if they were teens possibly, but the original description was that, Children as young as four years old yeah, disappear.
0: that's a good point. That's
1: a good point. Uh, small kids,
0: five and six. Yeah. You bring a four-year-old to a new settlement, you've got to spend <laughs> a little while raising it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> here's an ax, start chopping some wood. We're yes. going to need pegs for these. Uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. So yeah. with small children, you need to take care of them. And I know medieval children were much more robust and adult- earlier on. But yeah, they can't be too young for this to work in the story. Now, like I said, if they were young teens and even young teen couples, some may have been married as early as 16, 17, 15 even, maybe 14. Maybe then you have very young adults going off to settle an area in which maybe there was some promise of money that, well, we'll send some money back once we get settled. And you just never heard from them again. But again, I got to keep
0: going back to the original account. Well, and coming back for a second to Dr. Dirks' paper in the American Journal of Dermatopathology, he makes a reference to the immigration idea in that paper, most specifically in regards to efforts to colonize Pomerania, a historical region which is now part of both Poland and Germany, and the origin of tiny, cute, fluffy lap dogs.
1: I was so- going <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what, the dogs didn't, uh, yeah. they didn't settle the land. Well, they, they brought were, the kids back
0: yeah. to brush their hair. So Aww. this addresses the possibility that the children were maybe being tricked into leaving hamel to help populate other regions like Pomerania, and as we've already heard, Moravia, and the region most closely associated with the legend for whatever reason, Transylvania, which I think you could mostly connect probably to a one particular version of the story. Right. We did come across some other sources that indicated that some research has actually been done on this idea and concluded it was unlikely, and this is pretty fascinating, because researchers have been unable to connect any surnames or names of towns from the time that were established around that time, back to the region the kids would have come from. And the simple fact is, is that when people immigrate and they go places, they name cities after where they came from. You know, like New Amsterdam, New York, New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are not the best examples. But that's the (laughs) point is, you take your culture with you, and there's no evidence of this culture going anywhere. And this part of this story parallels, in my opinion, the Lost Colony in North Carolina. And the whole idea mm. that, you know, that whole colony vanished, and it's a dead end when you try to track where it went. And yes, that's been requested of us a lot, and we will have to cover it sooner yeah. or later. I'm very much interested in it. But that's what I'm saying is, like, generally when something like this happens, the names or some of the traditions are going to come up there. Just like when you go around America, and to this day, areas have prominent culture associated with where people immigrated from to whatever area of the United States they were in, whether it's Germans in Pennsylvania or you go into Texas and you're getting uh, kolaches uh, my friend <laughs> to get <laughs> oh yes in Texas
1: yes delicious <laughs> yeah so
0: it's just it's they haven't been able to make that connection so that's a mark against the immigration idea
1: well again th- that would have to depend for me anyway on the age of the emigrants right, and if that they was were a children they're not going to, yeah they're not going to remember their culture they're going to adapt to new ones yeah if they were old enough to have already established their mores and cultural ties then they take those with them and then some trace of that Still
0: remains, usually. So here's an interesting theory. The idea that Mm -hmm. they may have been lost in battle. And again, this one has more connections to Hamlin than you might think at first. I want to go back to Dr. Dirk's paper here, and he mentions the Battle of Zitamunda, Zedemunde, uh, S E D M U N D what Forrest said. Now, Dr. Dirk says that that is a favorite of German historians, this particular story. This, and this corroborates something one of our own ARC researchers pointed out before we even came across this. And this is interesting. The Battle of, say it, Forrest? Zedemunde. Is one of the few theories that has a direct proven connection to Hamelm. And there's even more of a connection than that, the date. It was supposed to have taken place on July 28th, in the year 1260, or possibly July 28, 1259, near an abandoned village known as Sedemunder. Good enough. Okay. Today, this is in the state of Lower Saxony in northwest Germany. The battle was a direct conflict between the people of Hamlin and the Bishop of Minden. The whole thing was centered around a deed for Hameln that was sold by a Benedictine abbot, the Abbot of Fulda, whom, as near as I can tell at the time, would have been Heinrich IV von. Erthal, not Urkel, (laughs) E-R-T-H-A-L, for 500 silver marks. Now, at this time, the abbots were also princes, and this particular princely abbey or Prince Bishopric was extremely powerful and had a lot of land. We actually found a map of how much land they had, and it was a good chunk of the country. Anyway, the people of Hameln were fighting to maintain their independence, and they lost horribly. They were upset about the deed of their town being sold. However, after the battle, the reigning dukes of Brunswick-Luneburg managed to have Hamelin released from the Bishop of Minden. So even though the battle didn't go well, in the end, the town prevailed. And to this day, there's a memorial stone, which I found a picture of online, pretty fascinating somebody took, because it's just in this field where the abandoned village used to be commemorating the battle. So you see this field, there is no evidence of the village whatsoever. There's just a field and next to it is like a bond, one of those roads that you would see an episode of Top Gear on. It's a beautiful, Uh beautiful area. But here's what's interesting about all this. Although most of the stories about the Pied Piper reflect the year 1284, the math for that is primarily based on varied accounts and then a stone inscription in town on a memorial gate that was erected after the 130 children disappeared. Listen to this from a blog entry written in German by Alfred Schmitz, and it mentions something very interesting about the stone. He's an amateur historian. And again, shout out to researcher Falk for digging this up. He is the one that grew up near Hamel. And on the new gate was inscribed... Sentum ter cum ab urbe duxerat ante 272 condita The translation is this gate was built 272 years after the magician led the 130 children from the city So in the quote from Mr. Schmitz's site or blog there is documentation and research that indicate that 130 children from Hameln actually disappeared on June 26 1284 In fact, the mysterious stone consists of two parts, the younger one from 1556 and an older one with the date 1531 engraved on it. All right, so this is interesting. This reminds me of Oak Island a little bit. Everybody's always carving things in stones. Uh Here's the reason it's interesting. 272 years prior to 1556 was 1284, the most accepted date. But 272 years prior to 1531, the other date on the stone, was 1259, and that was the year of the Battle of Sidamunda And I know I'm saying that wrong. Year aside, June 26th is still the day of the Festival of Saints John and Paul. So the thing is, if you're looking at the earlier date on the stone, it lines up with that battle And we know that in that battle, the village lost, although there's not a representation of exactly, there's no casualties or any uh, counts Mm -hmm. like that. So this all begs the question, was the Pied Piper a safe metaphor representing the Bishop of Minden and, and the loss of the young townsfolk in battle? Research we found points out that there is no record, as I said, of the casualties other than to say that the townsfolk lost. This could mean that the people who fought were all killed, or it may mean that only some of them were killed and others were captured as prisoners of war. One source we came across implied that those that were captured would likely have been released once the conflict was resolved. So if they were released, would you still craft this legend about 130, a very specific number, leaving town forever? However, conversely, I would point out, you know, maybe 300 people, young people, went to battle, and 130 were killed, and the rest were captured and returned. There's no real way to know— But it is interesting that if you subtract 272 from the earlier date on the stone, you get the exact year of the battle. It's like every single one of them has one good thread in it that is a, well, it's a maybe kind of thread. Well, yeah, that's why these
1: are formed and why they keep getting promoted is that there is a a good, solid connection. And usually, regardless of the other things that don't make sense about a theory or a hypothesis in this case, to me, Maybe, with the exception of the murine typhus, don't have enough meat on the bone to, for me, make them jump from hypothesis to theory. So, but this one, yeah, the dates line up. However, again, would you want small children fighting your battles for you? Teens, yes, of course, that's always been the case. You get teenagers to fight in wars for you because they're big enough at that point, they have a lot of energy. And uh, old folks don't have a lot of steam for that kind of thing anymore. So, but again, these are young children. So were they captured as prisoners or were they held as hostages? Because that's another thing about the Pied Piper story. I could see him, the Piper really wanted the thousand guilders he was promised. He could have taken the children away as hostages for payment, but he didn't. He took the children himself. So that's another odd thing I thought about the story is that, well, he could have rounded the kids up and said, hey, you got to pay me the money, not seeing your kids. So what did he want more? He wanted the children. He didn't want the money anymore. Or revenge. Or, yeah, or just revenge, figuring he wasn't going to get his money anyway. I'm Brock Randolph. And when I'm not, um, well, I really don't do anything besides listen to Astonishing Legends, so... Let's just get back to the show.
0: We got three more theories here, folks. This one was a good one. I like to call this one the pagan cult extermination theory. Well, actually, I can't take credit for that. I think somebody in our research group named it that, but I like (laughs) it. Um, this yes, is a good theory. Good. I mean, it's by that, I, I mean, it's, it's not a good theory in that if it happened, it would be horrible, no, no, but no, it's an entertaining not. look into the past. And this comes from that same article that we had referenced by the amateur historian, German historian Schmitz. And Schmitz puts forth the idea that the children were essentially massacred in a pagan cult extermination arranged by the Counts of Spiegelberg. And he spoke with a retired teacher and historian named Gernot Hussam, H-U-S-A-M, who claims our favorite phrase, mystery solved. So now I'm going to read Hussam's theory. And we'll have a link to Schmitz's blog entry. Keep in mind that it's in German, so you'll need to run it through Google Translate. Yeah, stop saying that. What? Google Translate? Or that we'll have a link? You yeah, have, because Yeah. I gave you all these links the... already. You're good <laughs> okay. to go. All right. Yeah. All right. You have a point. Um, And Falk, who found this stuff, is a native German speaker. So he would just post the links yeah. in, in German. I was like, I can't read this. But I well, we figured it out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. Good. Hussam told Schmitz that he thought the kids those days were often off to Koppenberg, where they supposedly vanished to, to celebrate exuberant pagan festivals that may have even involved the Prince of Darkness himself. He suggests that these festivals were led by a colorfully dressed piper. While the Counts of Spiegelberg would have none of this, they were three strictly religious brothers, and Hussam believes that they rounded up some mercenaries and they ambushed one of the pagan festivals and had all of the kids murdered. And then they hid them in a cave that they filled up to hide their tracks. Pretty heady stuff. A medieval satanic Mm. panic, right? It's designed to kill old religious ideas more than the folks espousing them. It's hard to know, but Hussam has made some pretty valid points about the missing kids. And this is some Dan Brown stuff here because he thinks (laughs) the, the clues to their disappearance are hidden in that famous illustration of the story that was created in 1592 now as we said according to our research the illustration was based on an earlier one that was made 300 years earlier in 1300 and and enshrined in a stained glass window in the church but the church was destroyed by a fire in 1660 however the illustration that was based on the window was done 70 years prior to the stained glass being lost from what we can tell on a timeline standpoint But that image shows something interesting, and that's three deer in a field in the background behind the piper. Now, it turns out the deer is on the Spiegelberg family crest, which I found that too. We'll have an image for that, and Forrest, yes, I already sent it to you. Could the three Mm. deer in the illustration represent the three brothers of the Spiegelberg family? Could the kids have all disappeared because after the massacre, their bodies were hidden in a cave that was somehow sealed up? The cave or hole in the mountain they went into and never came out of is a prominent part of all tellings of the story. So this is interesting to me, and I don't know why the townsfolk wouldn't do anything about this. Maybe fear of religious persecution for fostering pagan beliefs. I don't know. But there are some plausible elements to this idea, especially if they were afraid of the Spiegelbergs. and They wanted a story to tell. That would enshrine the memory of what happened to their children, but they didn't want to cop to what actually happened because it was embarrassing and also against the emerging power structure and religious structure.
1: Well, it's possible, I suppose, but heavily relying on a
0: bit of conspiracy. Yes, it is. Although back then, predating the age of information, a conspiracy would be a lot easier to pull off. (laughs) Uh, yeah all you got to do is not be seen by somebody with eyeballs and you've gotten away with it you know (laughs) uh like Uh, yes i suppose well well that kind
1: of reminds me of the headless horseman legend in that it's possible that the guy in the story was killed and just nobody saw him right uh do it the protagonist the love rival So possibly it's a case like that where a story is concocted to cover up a real murder. Like, well, there you go. It was a headless horseman. He was Hessian. He was a soldier. And and that's what happened. No, I did not strangle the guy. Yeah. And that's kind of passed off. But... It's somewhat plausible to me, although I think there would have been more of a record of that happening, regardless of how ashamed or in fear they were that they didn't want any retribution from the Spiegelberg family, brothers, or any kind of uh, outing of their weird pagan midsummer type things that they were doing there.
0: Yeah, but the record is in the hidden code in the picture of the three deer Aha. in the field. Why are the three deer in the field?
1: Or they could just be deer in a field, which is pretty common.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But there's not a lot else going on in that picture besides there's the town, there's the river, there's the kids, there's the piper, and there's the hole in the mountain. Hey, it takes time and to draw a lot of the three d- detail. deer. <laughs> uh, but there are some trees. I will say that. There are
1: trees. Yeah. Uh, generally, I will say, though, when it comes to symbolic representations of animals, there, there's something more to it. It's like the St. Eustace, the stag, with the Christian cross above its head. Yes. It's made a little more prominently. That one I still think is a bit of a stretch. I'd want to see a few more clues hidden in the painting, like maybe a turn of the 19th century type of cowboy winking and making a hand signal to signify that he's with the Knights of the Golden Circle. I want a few more clues. I hear you. I hear
0: you. Other than just three deer. But it's not a bad one. Like I said, it's interesting. Moving on to the second-to-last theory, this is that the kids were basically rounded up and sold into slavery. And this is probably one of my favorite theories, again, not because of the horrific Uh thing that happened, but how it's presented. Tess dug this one up herself from an online magazine or blog called Life as a Human. This blog boasts 150 contributors from around the world, according to its About page. And one of them is a biologist, freelance writer, artist, and social commentator named Martha Sherwood. Now, Ms. Sherwood posted a fascinating take on the slavery aspect of the story of the Pied Piper at Life as a Human back in late December of 2016, and we have a link to it in the show notes. Right, Forrest? I gave you that link. Uh, You
1: have it here. See, now that's all I want is that there is an actual link here. Yes, but I think you a document
0: with all our links. Anyway. (laughs) Okay, very good. In Ms. Sherwood's posting, she theorizes that the Pied Piper might have been a slave raider from North Africa. She points out that genetically, the residents of Hamelin, particularly young blonde girls, would have been a valuable commodity in the slave markets. She cites examples supporting this from both Don Quixote and Othello. She goes on to suggest that this preference dates back to the period during which North Africa, Spain, and Italy were ruled by the Germanic Visigoths and that their fair skin was seen as a mark of high social status and aristocracy. So a, quote, boatload of German children, half of them virgin girls, would have been an exceedingly valuable cargo, end quote. Sherwood goes on to detail a great famine, and this I thought was super fascinating, I would have never come across this if we hadn't read Sherwood's take on this theory. This is a Great Famine that had occurred in 1257 and 58, and some cursory research on our part highlights how that famine was likely exacerbated by a monumentally large volcanic eruption in 1257 known as the Somalis Eruption. That's S-A-M-A-L-A-S. Sure, I'm saying it wrong. From Wikipedia, the Somalis Eruption occurred on the Indonesian island of Lombok and erupted dozens of miles into the sky. Raining ash from the sky as many as 210 miles away, it was so significant that it brought about abrupt cooling in the northern hemisphere, which some scientists say caused the ensuing famine, while others say it only exacerbated an existing one. Either way, obviously not good. Point is, times was hard, and good food was scarce, and Sherwood posits that the promise of hard-to-find delicacies like dried fruit would have made it fairly easy to lure starving children away. I'd like to share the last few paragraphs of Sherwood's article. Quote, Here, then, is a possible alternate scenario, an apparent merchant vessel anchored outside of town at a point where a passage connected a cave to the riverbank. The kidnapper, dressed in Moorish finery, appeared similar to merchants who put on a show to advertise their wares. He led the children out of town with the promise of food and entertainment, and they were promptly whisked aboard the boat by Confederates who immediately weighed anchor. Ship and cargo were long gone before the townspeople knew what had happened. According to the story, three children, one lame, one blind, and one deaf, were left behind, which also accords with the slaver hypothesis. Who knows? Perhaps there are people walking the streets of Algiers and Tunis today who are descendants of the lost children of Hamlin. So here's the thing about this. Sherwood's piece here that she wrote for this blog is a quick read. It's only a page. You can see in the link, but checks out to me. A lot of it makes a lot of sense. I can just see it. I don't know. I can just visualize what she's talking about. The town being crowded enough, the kids are all in the market or somewhere, and they follow somebody, hey, come down to the ship. We've got dried fruit and blah, blah, air. Get on the boat. We (laughs) promise it'll be amazing. You'll make money. We'll come back for your parents later. And the Mm -hmm. boat's gone. And yeah, maybe there's a cave that leads down to the waterfront or something. And then for the parents, it's like they're gone. They didn't even see the boat. Maybe they heard some secondhand information about it. Those kids are sold into slavery. You're never going to see or hear from them again. Tragically, this kind of thing still goes on today. It's happening now with human trafficking. So, And in some cases, those families don't ever hear from their kids again. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the kids didn't survive. It just happens that they – and they get away, as you said, Forrest, to your point about the young age. They're young enough that they can be indoctrinated by whomever winds up raising them. So to me, this theory carries a fair amount of weight.
1: Yeah, some elements do make sense. Some don't as much. The points about the blind child and the deaf child – not being included because, well, they they wouldn't be as, as good as slaves. That element of the deaf child and the blind child didn't come till later in the story, in the account, remember? Oh, yeah. So to me, there has to be a condition, some event, some type of gathering somehow where these kids are led away and 130 parents or double that number if it's both the mother and father, are not noticing that their kids are suddenly
0: now all traipsing out of town, out of the village. Yeah, but if you're impoverished in the late 1200s, are you really a helicopter parent? Maybe. I mean, I feel like the kids go out (laughs) as long as they're back for the food. I don't
1: know. Okay, and then another point of this is that the possible kidnapper, the salesman, the this music man sort of character who comes in with great promises. Well, in this scenario, he would be Moorish. And yes, maybe his clothing would be colorful, but he's going to stand out. And especially during this time when they're a little wary of Moors and people of the Ottoman Empire and people who aren't Christian coming into town, putting on a show for the kids without view of the parents, Possibly, but again, it's going to have to rely on a very risky move of this stranger, this foreigner, coming into town, not just from the docks, where the children probably wouldn't be all gathered, coming into town with a big pitch and luring them away. It's taking a big risk. So yeah, it's interesting, but uh, he is going to be noticed as a moor, and he's not going to look like everyone else, and he's not going to fit, most importantly, the description from, again, the original account. And I'm not the only one who's thinking along these lines, because Falk, who is also in River, one of our researchers here, had made a statement that I'm going to read from River. And as we said, he grew up in the area, so he knows it very well. This is what Falk had to say as a counterpoint to Sherwood's hypothesis here. I find this very hard to believe. Hamlin is over 200 kilometers inland up the Visa River. To get there, you would have to sail through a part of the North Sea that falls dry at low tide. You also have to pass through Bremen and Minden, which were both major trade centers and part of the Hanseatic League, who likely would object to any slave traders passing through, especially if they are of Moorish descent. Especially Minden was fanatically Catholic, and kind of still is. And considering the tensions with Muslims, they would rather lynch them than let them pass through. At this time, the Crusades are still on, and Reconquista has not happened yet. The river is also rarely more than 50 meters wide, narrower in many places. You were not just sailing up there. Ships would be hauled upstream by
0: animals or even their crew. What was the Reconquista? I had to, I did look that up, but I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, the
1: Reconquista is a note here, uh, Portuguese and Spanish for reconquest. And that was the period in the history of the Iberian Peninsula of about 780 years between the uh, Umayyad conquest of Hispania in 711 and the fall of the Nazareth kingdom of Granada to the expanding Christian kingdoms in 1492.
0: Okay, that's a long period, 780 years.
1: Yes. But yeah, it hadn't happened often. yet, as he's pointing out. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. So here, Falk goes on to say, as a counterpoint, anyway, the idea of a Moorish slave trader just going from Spain through the North Sea and up the river to Hamelin and then back unmolested appears very unlikely to me. I mean, that is also still a time when Europeans happily targeted the Jewish population at any opportunity, and a Muslim would have had a good chance of being killed on sight or executed. The oldest mosque in Germany was only built in 1779. Muslims at the time were considered not only heathens, but almost indistinguishable from Satanists because they worshipped a perverted quote-unquote version of Christianity. So now it just makes me think of uh, (laughs) Salah from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, the Sultan of the Sea. Some very jolly guy coming into town, very colorfully dressed as a moor or a right. foreigner. And he's playing a pipe and like, come with me, I have dried fruits.
0: And the kid's all taken off after. Yeah, but I still like Sherwood's theory. But you know what? <laughs> this is the kind of knowledge, the knowledge that Falk has. He's from the area. Those geographic points he makes about, this is unlike, I mean, it falls dry at low tide. Yeah, right. that's pretty hard for you to get your vessel up there full of slaves in or out, or empty or whatever. I mean, he makes a lot of valid points. Well, here's the twist or the addendum in which I see some kind of slave trade
1: happening. You would get a local guy, again, going back to the original description of he didn't look like a foreigner. He certainly spoke the language. He didn't stand out other than for his clothing. So I could see somebody who didn't raise, other than that, didn't raise a whole lot of suspicion and came in and was generally accepted, although he was very well noticed and he was remarkable somehow gathering the children around her, gathering them up and maybe as absconding with them for some kind of slavery on down the line. But again, these are young children. So there's a point at which uh, maybe you're helpful at five or six, maybe hauling a bucket of water. I'm still put, trying to get my 10 year old to be
0: helpful. <laughs> well,
1: different times, of course. <laughs> what I'm saying is that, of course, you uh, <laughs> it just makes me think of Les Miserables with the, uh, yes. yeah, the little girl and she's what, six or, you know, five or six, and she's carrying two buckets of frozen water down from the river. Yeah. At some point, though, there's some practicality that has to be considered. And that's what I like about Falk's assessment here in that some of these things don't seem very practical for that scenario. However, for me, what I like about it it doesn't rule out some other mass abduction of some type for
0: possibly a purpose of the time, which would have been slavery. And that brings us to our very last theory that we're going to talk about before we just uh, go over our final conclusions. And that is a theory of the Children's Crusades. There are a lot of people that mention this in connection with the Pied Piper, and I hadn't heard of this until we encountered this story, because I'm bereft of valid collegiate-level history. And oh. I, if I could do anything, oh, I would go back to school <laughs> and I would study history now and folklore. Well, we, we do have the Great Courses Plus. That's a good point. We do have that. Uh, so uh, the Children's Crusades apparently took place in the year 1212, and there were two separate events. One led by a young French boy named Stephen of Cloyes, and another one led by a young German boy named Nicholas of Cologne. And the goal of these crusades was to peacefully convert Muslims to Christianity to regain the Holy Land. In the traditional story, 30,000 children set out on this trip to the Mediterranean, where the sea was supposed to part for them, but it didn't. At this point, things really turn south. The kids are sold to two merchants who give free passage on boats to as many of the children as are willing. Or at least that's what they say. The kids are then taken to Tunisia, where they are sold into slavery. Or they die in a shipwreck off Sardinia in a storm, depending on which account you believe. Now, according to Wikipedia, modern scholars have unveiled two distinct movements associated with these crusades, and the real story is worse than the mythical one. Nicholas of Cologne from Germany took two groups through two different routes through Switzerland. Two out of three of these pilgrims died on the trip, and many of the survivors went home because, you know, this was the epitome of, are we there yet? A, <laughs> you mean as kids, as yeah.
1: impatient kids. Yes, okay. are
0: we there yet? Where are we crusading? In accordance mm-hmm. with some of the other stuff we've already learned, the surviving kids now in Genoa were offered citizenship by the Genevese because they were so impressed with them and what they had gone through. Nicholas apparently continued on with an ever-dwindling group and eventually died during a second attempt at crossing the Alps. Meanwhile, back home in Cologne, his dad was arrested and hanged because the locals were all mad their kids had followed his son and died on the trip. Mm. Stephen of Cloy's... I'm not sure I'm saying that right. It's a French town. Mm -hmm. You know how to say it, Cloyes? Should we ask? Let's not look it up. Let's just take the emails. Wing it then. Uh, He was in France. His story was pretty similar, although he had rounded up 30,000 kids, apparently. He had way more kids. He didn't make it either, and most of the kids following him wound up begging in the streets while others made their way back home. Can you imagine being a kid in this? I mean, this is your next Disney film right here. Uh, You know, these kids (laughs) just like, It's (laughs) insanity. Yeah, with singing and dancing uh, and horrible, horrific. No,
1: that's what I'm saying is that times were rough back then. And these parents, uh, you know, especially during a famine, well, this happens now, terribly unfortunate in some parts of the developing world where parents will sell off their children because they can't afford to keep feeding them and they have other siblings to consider. So children of a certain age will be sold off and sold into slavery and all sorts of other horrible things and the parents get a little bit of money. So maybe you could see something like that happening to a small village like Hamelin that was undergoing a lot of stress, either from famine, disease, whatever, and just said, here, take the kids. Either we're going to get money for this or they're going to be better off somewhere else. But... Generally, the somewhere else
0: was not better. And there's another reason this doesn't necessarily line up. Nicholas is the one from Germany. So the question becomes, could he have been the Piper? He rounded up all these kids for the Crusades, took them away, never came back. Well, the short answer is no, not if the dates are right. Whether the Piper story takes place in 1284, or if you follow the other side of the stone in Hamlin and do the math, 1259, both are well after 1212 when these Crusades took place. We're talking 70 plus years prior to 1284. So while rounding up kids, having them depart, possibly even with music playing and excitement never to return, lines up with this idea in some ways, the dates just don't. And on top of that, some of those kids probably made it back home, and there's no tales of that from Hamlin that we could find. So that's the end of all the theories, which I uh-huh. find wholly unsatisfying. And I'm sorry, <laughs> well, that's, that's we, a, just, we present what we find, yeah, but yeah. that's where we're coming at. Why don't we talk a little bit about modern day Hamlin and the and yeah. the status of the legends? And when you look at modern day Hamlin, it looks like an amazing place to visit. I honestly oh, they, want to go there. It's on my bucket yeah. list now. They say that you can really get lost, and it is in a lot of ways being the home of folklore, which they've embraced because mm-hmm. it's not just the Pied Piper. It's like this is the iconic folklore story. It's kind of one of the king of the hills in terms of that. And they've embraced it. They've got little rats hidden all around town, like in brass in the sidewalks. So you oh. can walk around and look for those. <laughs> and they have the Rat Catcher's House, which is like a restaurant and it's it doesn't have anything to do with the legend, but it's called that because it has an inscription on the side about the legend.
1: And the one case where you can include rat in the name of your restaurant and get away with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've been to uh, a few towns in Germany and, you know, it's like all of Europe. Like, if you watch Rick Steves travel specials his recurring show on PBS. Like it all looks wonderful. And it is all these towns now have something charming about them. And even in the smallest ones, that's what I found in Italy is that they all they all have a a medieval section usually, and there's something really interesting about that. And they're very good at preserving history. So it's great to soak up and this town is no different, but it also shares a connection as we've mentioned before to a lot of other little towns and areas where something phenomenal has happened. And so you'll see that where towns have embraced where something weird happened, like Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and there's a Mothman Festival, and there's Mothman references in a statue, and there's a lot of fun that can be had with that. Now, on the other hand, where it's much more tragic and horrific, like Villisca, the axe house, where it's something you don't want to be associated with, because it's awful, and you get a lot of murder tourism, and eventually the area realizes, well, if that's what people are coming here to see, then we're not going to glorify it, but we're also not going to deny that. I think in the case of these classic legends and medieval folk tales and, and legends, it's nice when they embrace it and have it part of their local culture because it keeps things alive. It's what makes life interesting. And in this case, yeah, the original incident was tragic and horrible, but it has become part of their legend and part of their identity, especially in the realm of a grim
0: legend, or fairy tale. So today, there's still that street with no drumming,
1: which is another tradition, right? We mentioned
0: in the beginning. Yeah, that's right. I found it on Google Earth. I mean, who knows if it's the same street it always was, but yeah. I think it was because it's, you can reference it by the buildings. Uh, you know, they could have renamed it for tourism, <laughs> but I, I have a feeling, you know, it, it might be the same. It's not very long either. It's a short little No, street. you're
1: right. And I think from what I could gather on the Google translation of the church, the Machtkerh, I forgot, to, even from part one, how to pronounce that again. Market, But the uh, it's been described the same way, is that there's a short bit of street, it's not very long, between the market and the church. Therefore, market church, or church adjacent to the market here. And it's that bit of street there that's always been remembered. And that's what I love about these medieval legends, is that
0: they tend to hold on to their traditions and preserve them. Well, this brings us to that time. It's time for our conclusions. Uh, Forrest, uh, why don't you go first on this one, and then I'll wrap it up with mine. Yeah, you've
1: done a lot more outlining here of your conclusions. I really only have a couple of thoughts that occurred to me. One that we did not mention, we've already got a letter, at least a a few of them, is an idea that connects this to the phenomenon that is much more current that we're all talking about now, the missing 411, and people, and especially children, going missing in the woods. And I have to admit, I haven't done a whole lot of reading, but I have watched a few documentaries. One, I believe, that uh, David Politus, who wrote the books, the series of books, was involved in. So it highlights some stories that he has covered. Uh, and also our friends Adam and Matt over at uh, Graveyard Tales. They did a pretty good episode. I think it, it might be a multi-parter, but they had a lot to talk about on that one. It's very entertaining. And some of the stories they relay were mind-blowing about this phenomenon and what people have reported. And there are a lot of similarities to that, because backing up to what I think happened here, I'm going to go back to the original account, and not what's so much briefly mentioned, even at the town square or the, the town hall there, or the description from the stained glass window. But in considering both of those accounts and the original account that ended up in the Town Crier Chronicle there, the donut, donut touch that, (laughs) I want a donut (laughs) or an apple fritter immediately uh, every time I I say that. My point here is that this thing was documented at the time and there was an eyewitness. If you can believe it, I know it's a long time ago, but that's what I like about uh, medieval stories. A lot of weird stuff happened in the Middle Ages like the battle in the skies over Nuremberg. Yeah. Just really weird, unexplainable things. And you could say like, well, people back then, they were simple and stupid. They didn't understand what was going on. Like people aren't any more stupid back then. They didn't have the tools that we do now or some of the understanding, but they, I would say, essentially have the same reasoning capability that we have now. They just have a different set of data to deal with and use for their conclusions and reasoning. So not everybody back then was a simpleton, okay? There was the same amount of geniuses And common folk and average people, as there are now, we have a lot more progression on our side here, progression of uh, scientific study and attitudes and, and documentation and data. So with them dealing with what they had back then, I would say that it's a pretty reasonable account that something very strange happened in 1284 with at least 130 children disappearing. And it was so traumatic. They went looking for them, could not find them. And since that tragic and terrible event have always remembered it, they commemorated it because it stuck out with them at the time as being like, well, I don't know what happened to the kids. That would devastate the town. And if it was disease, I think that would have been mentioned at the time, not made up with a story. I think if it was a a kidnapping, it would have been mentioned at the time. And that's not what we have coming from the original account, which was, I would say, within a decade or two of being remembered and recounted because it was such a big deal back then. And none of that's mentioned in the later Latin accounts that were, you could say, contemporaneous within 10 to 20 years. So again, I go back to something very strange happened and 130 children went missing. And if you connect that to the missing 411. Well, something weird is going out in the woods today where people are missing, and there are accounts of children wandering off. There's one that's covered in that documentary about the missing 411 that I, I'm just going off the top of my head here and what I can remember, but there was a child who ended up like 30 miles away with either just socks on in snow or something outrageous, not, not even properly dressed. And I believe he was found later, but he had a hearing problem. And it makes me wonder, is there a connection there to something about children with disabilities not being taken and why some other children are never discovered? And it's not always children, it's adults too. And in this case, uh, there was one crazy account. It showed up in Reddit, and of course you have to take that with a grain of salt, but the account was from a young man who was on a trail with his girlfriend. It just happened to be that time where you turn around, and this is the other thing about The Missing 411. Most of these stories have some component where if it's a child or an adult, they go missing when a person just turns their back. The kid was 20 feet away at a campsite in this one awful story. And there were two adults there. They just turn around. Next thing you know, a minute later, the child is gone. They go out running for him. How far can a five-year-old go? Well, nowhere to be found. So that's another component possibly to this other phenomenon where you think, how could 130 kids, they go to the town square and there's some weird guy with a magical flute and he leads them away. If you tie in with that phenomenon and some of the what reported aspects of it, people disappear in a flash. So I consider that. Sometimes there's a cave involved. Sometimes it's just out in the woods. So there are a lot of connections here, which I think are worthwhile. But man, I don't know how you would ever tie that in with this medieval story, other than you could just sum up a lot of these same components and and it makes you scratch your head. I do think there was a mass disappearance. I'm not sure if rats are connected. Doesn't seem likely with the original event, but I have come to believe that there was a mass disappearance of young children. You've done a lot more thinking on this and laying it out here, as I see in the outline. What do you think, Scott? I do have some thoughts here.
0: I don't know if they're, just because they're written down, doesn't mean they're any more collected than yours. And <laughs> you gonna, fooled me. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to start okay. by saying, I don't know what to think. The slavery thing seems plausible to me, but our own ARC researcher who grew up within 100 kilometers of Hamlin, feels like it's unlikely, and he makes a convincing case against it. So where does that leave me? Honestly, I'm completely befuddled. I think my runner up is probably one of the immigration ideas that Hmm. uh, perhaps they were rounded up willingly or not in an attempt to either escape poverty on their own or at the behest of their parents and sent off to be offered a brighter future somewhere else as settlers. But again, Forrest, you made a really valid point about the age and how the story details that children as young as four, and that doesn't make quite as much sense. So there are some very specific details. The number of children has never wavered.
1: The age, no one under four, Because, of course, you got to figure if 130 children go missing, all the adults are going to get together. They're going to, like, find out who's missing. They're going to do a little bit of detective work on their own if they have not all willingly given their children away. Yeah. Like you said, to possibly, well, maybe they'll they'll have a brighter future during this famine, and maybe they'll come back in five or six years. Yeah. I would have guessed that they would have uh, done a little research and figured out just what had happened and what are the specifics. Who was that stranger? All these things.
0: Yeah. And again, in terms of them being offered a brighter future, we come back to the inability to really connect any descendants from other areas back to them. Although if they had gone as far away as Tunisia or somewhere else, maybe that would be really, really hard to do. But wouldn't you think at least one surviving kid would have tried to tell their story or write it down or document it somehow as they grew up? And what's left? I mean, maybe it was a great tragedy. Maybe it was the end for the kids. Maybe they were all together, as some have suggested, and killed in a cave-in or some kind of bizarre natural disaster. Think of those 12 kids that got trapped in that cave in Thailand. Remember that? Yeah. Imagine something like that happening in medieval times. No hope of rescue. Even if you go to the cave where these kids went, if it was like that cave in Thailand at certain times of year, it flooded, that closed off the access points. And so you would look in there and you would see a pool that came all the way up to the ceiling. You wouldn't even know how to get back deeper into it. It would have become impassable. But if there was a cave like that, you'd think you would know about it. Up, They would have found that up on the, on the Koppenberg. So yeah. could the kids have all gone in there and seemingly vanished? But again, how do 130 kids get into that position? I mean, 12, that makes sense. 130? Right. It's so specific and it's so large. And you said that these stories, as they go through time, they get polished. And that's one thing that's really fascinating about this, especially with all the versions that have been tracked down. Like when you look at Professor Ashleman's page and you see all those versions, you can read through them and there's a written record of how it's evolving, how things are changing, what years details are being added. And that is like really amazing because it's a forensic analysis of this legend. But the problem is, as you get further back in time, we don't have that hard copy of the initial story. To compare it to. But what we can compare it to is some of the early generations of the story. And that's really interesting. And so then you have to step back and look at all the details of The Legend of the Pied Piper and try to figure out how much of it's rooted in the original story and how much of it was added for allegory at a later date because somebody wanted to put their own message into this original story that really was just about a cave-in or some other weird thing. Absolutely. The story was used. Yeah, you know. exactly. It was used. And I honestly, because they knew that story had legs. It's going to go forever. Clearly it does. 730 years, it's still being told. We're telling it again, and that means all the people that are listening to us now know about it, and they may continue to tell it to their kids, and it goes on and on and on. But the thing for me is I can't figure out if any of the theories work. You know, I couldn't find anything about this, but, like, I wonder if anyone has gone to the Koppenberg and taken, like, a GPR, ground-penetrating radar, or if there's been any archaeological excavations done to look for the remains of these kids. And it's probably a needle in a haystack, but on the other hand, there's enough folklore around it. If something like that's out there, it, sh- it should be a lot easier to find than, say, the Superstition Mine, which, of course, hasn't been found. But like, you, <laughs> you know what I mean. It doesn't seem like it's necessarily a really huge area to look, especially if there's geographic anomalies that you might be able to identify as a possible mass grave or site of a some kind of natural disaster, prior natural disaster. I wonder if anyone's gone looking to see if you could find the remains of any of these kids. But, you know, I can't figure out if any of these theories work. It's clear to me that something happened, something real. It has numbers. It has dates. Mm -hmm. It has a place. It has a a specific time to a specific number of children, and it resulted in them all vanishing entirely. For me, this one is up there with one of the greatest mysteries we've ever covered, and as far as I'm concerned, it's still unsolved. That's going to wrap up our series on The Pied Piper. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with a new show.
1: Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket
0: Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. Hi, I'm Brock Randolph. Adele is
1: spelled A-L-Y-L-L-E. No. Present or future compensation.
0: A-D-E. Thanks, guys. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone,
1: was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com, or interact with us and other
0: listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.